I'm Tavis Smiley, and hopefully uh, in this hour, we will uh, tell you something good. Uh, I'm telling you now, we love you, and we appreciate you uh, uh, tuning in today uh, to our program and every day here on Unapologetically Progressive, as I can say it, KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, we're playing Chaka all three hours today because today is her 70th birthday, so uh, in case you just tuned in, happy birthday to Chaka Khan. Celebrating her 70th NATO day today. It's been a great show the first two hours. I'm excited uh, and looking forward to this hour. Uh, to my point earlier, we're going to tell you something good in this hour. Uh, our guest in this hour is Dr. Paul Bloom, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University, a renowned psychologist and best-selling author who has uh, taught one of the most popular classes ever in the history of Yale University, has dedicated his career to exploring the mysteries of the human mind. So today, sort of a one-hour class, a master class, which you get to audit for free, courtesy of this radio station, uh, about his work and witness over the years. His latest book is called Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. It offers a sweeping overview of the latest research on the psychology of human behavior and culture. I expect and hope that in this conversation, uh, in this hour, uh, that Dr. Bloom and I will delve into some of the key topics covered uh, and explored in his text, Psych, including uh, the age-old debate of nature versus nurture. I had that debate with Sidney Poitier for 27 years. Many of you, most of you know that I was uh, had the honor of being a dear friend of Sidney Poitier. And every other Tuesday for 27 years, we would have lunch. Uh, and the thing that we debated most over a 27-year friendship <laughs> was nature versus nurture. Uh, we'll also talk about the psychology of emotions and decision-making, the development of morality and ethics, and the role of culture in shaping the mind. I am humbled, honored, and pleased to have Dr. Paul Bloom on this program. Dr. Bloom, how are you, sir? I am doing great. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. You know, you're no more thrilled than we are to have this uh, opportunity to access your mind uh, and your work. Uh, let me let me start with uh, start broad, and we'll we'll narrow our way through the hour. Um, again, as I said earlier, you've dedicated your career to exploring the mysteries of the human mind. My first big question is why. <laughs> it's it's the most interesting thing there is. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things out there in the world. There's politics, there's culture, there's the natural world. But at least for me, you know, figuring out why people do what they do, where our, what our dreams mean, how our memories work, why we hate each other sometimes and love each other other times, is just the absolute coolest question. So I've devoted my life to doing research and writing on these, on these questions, and, and I, I don't regret a minute of it. Yeah. What, 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 um, how, how did this become... Um, your, in, I, I see it as a vocation, as a calling, not just a job, obviously, but how did this become um, your vocation and your calling in the world? You know, um, when I was a kid, my, my younger brother, uh, Howard, is severely autistic. Mm. He doesn't speak. And I spent a lot of time as a teenager working with kids like him uh, in camps and in special programs. So I thought I'd become a clinical psychologist and work with kids. And then I kind of realized over time that I just don't have the patience for it or abilities for it. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't make for a good therapist. But <laughs> at McGill University, I had the good luck to bump into a professor, John McNamara, who does a lot of theoretical stuff, research stuff on psychology. And, you know, you, you ever have these situations where you bump into somebody, it's just chance, and mm. then your whole life is transformed. Mm. So I ended up working in his lab, and then I, and I never looked back. Yeah. Um, tell me more about how, as a child, um, 
you navigated the relationship with your brother Howard. And I asked that because I was just in conversation the other day. We have a host on this station who's done great work in the autism arena. Um, she's raised money. Um, they're building a center here in L.A. She's one of my colleagues here. Reva Martin has a son who's autistic. And I, I've just learned so much just watching the way that she moves and she operates. And, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, conversing with people every day on this program and just learning yeah. more about it over the years. And now, uh, you know, if you'd ask me, you know, 30 years ago, mentioned the word autism to me, I might have been completely dumbfounded. Uh, but now that 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 term and everything that connects to it has become so much more, uh, I think, uh, present uh, in not to say relevant in our society. But as a child, tell me about that relationship with your brother, Howard. So I, I think you're right. I think we've, we've really changed our way of viewing these, these sorts of things. And autism has taken on different meanings. So now we hear, you know, Elon Musk is, is autistic, Bill mm-hmm. Gates is autistic, a lot of famous people. And a lot of people you might meet would say, well, tell you, I, I'm autistic. And people, some people could be autistic, and I think it's true. And then they might speak about neurodiversity. They might say, well, don't treat this as, as an illness. Treat this as an alternative way of being that deserves respect, that deserves accommodation. And I'm pretty much behind that. But there's another sense of autistic, mm-hmm. um, where you have kids who can't speak, they can't toilet themselves. They can't. They need help to make it through the day. And I think I think you can't look at that seriously and say, "Wow, that's like a different way of being." Rather, it's just this terrible scourge. And if we could fix it, if we could cure these kids, it would be wonderful. And growing up with a brother like that, you know, it 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 um it has certain effects on you. It it makes you appreciate luck. You know, I've I've had. I have two sons, and they're both in their twenties. Both wonderful, healthy, happy kids. Mm-hmm. But I was always conscious that it could have been different. It it, it exposes you to sort of the, the role of blind chance in your life, mm. and um, and and it also develops. It also, I think, in some way, gets you to be compassionate towards people. Sometimes, as with somebody who's really autistic, sometimes somebody who doesn't give back, but just needs the help, and it's not a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. I have so much respect for people who have autistic kids, uh, particularly the severely autistic kids, because it is, it is so tough. It is so tough. And I have so much respect for people who, who do this. Yeah. Um, we have great respect for Reva Martin. Um, uh, she's uh, the host of our midday, I mean, um, uh, afternoon drive program, rather. She hosts the afternoon drive program four to six. She's on the day, as a matter of fact. And um, let me just pivot right quick ever so gently. Um, today, 435, uh, she'll be here. Uh, with our resident um, justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, who's been covering the case of uh, L.A. City Councilman Mark Whitney Thomas. As you know, yesterday the defense rested. Uh, they rested. I have not uh, had an update on what's happening right now, but I suspect right now, uh, at, or if not now, at some point today, they're in closing arguments. Somebody find out for me where they are. They should be uh, in closing arguments at some point today, and uh, it is possible that there will be a verdict perhaps in this case today, uh, perhaps tomorrow. Uh, but we've been following this case every day at 435, the case of L.A. City Councilman Mark Willie Thomas, this federal bribery case. Uh, and um, we're the only station in town that's been given this uh, daily uh, download uh, to you every day. Uh, and so we are getting to the end of this trial. And again, Arriva today at 435 will be in conversation with our justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, who's been in the courtroom every day covering this case but I, I raise that only because we were talking about Reva and her son who's autistic and she's done great work is doing great work on the autism front and uh, I echo Dr. Paul Bloom uh, have great respect for those who are in this space and helping others to navigate it so Reva's experience basically with her son 
uh, caused her to start the Special Needs Network, and she's raised all kinds of money to help uh, other parents who are dealing with children who are autistic. Uh, we're talking with our guest, um, uh, brilliant Yale uh, uh, professor uh, emeritus uh, Dr. Paul Bloom about his lifelong work exploring the mysteries of the human mind. I'm always fascinated by these conversations and none greater to talk to about the human mind than Dr. Paul Bloom and we'll jump right into it when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Happy birthday Chaka Khan. Today is Chaka's 70th birthday so all three hours of today's program we've been playing some of the best of Chaka Khan and uh, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> uh, she has acquitted herself quite well with a with a with a deep corpus uh, of, of hits uh, and B-sides. Um, Chicago's own Chaka Khan celebrating her 70th birthday today. We love you, Chaka, and we are celebrating your NATO Day here on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Paul Bloom, uh, renowned psychologist, best-selling author who's dedicated his life uh, and career to exploring, as I said earlier, the mysteries of the human mind. His latest text is called Psych. The story of the human mind There's a lot in this book. Hard to know where to start, Dr. Bloom. Let me start with this, I think. And that is um, just sort of um, just a, a teaser here. Uh, when you enter conversations with laypersons about the mysteries of the human mind, I mean, you've made uh, and offered presentations around the world. Uh, when you start um, trying to get us uh, to hone in our thinking about the presentation you're about to make about the human mind, uh, where do you typically start? Uh, it depends a lot on the kind of talk I'm giving, but I'd like to start by talking about a discovery that we've made, and there's a few discoveries. Okay. I'll quickly, I'll quickly tell you about three. Which it, just, you it, know, it ain't, ain't got to be quick. We've got an hour, brother. Go ahead. Take your time. I'm with you. I want to I okay. learn here. Yeah. One is the idea that the brain is the source of mental life. The, the physical brain, this three-pound piece of meat between our ears, is what, where our feelings come from, where our plans come from, our ideas, our loves, our hatreds. We don't exactly know how it does it. You know, in some way, we think it works like a computer, but that doesn't explain the feelings, which computers probably don't have. Mm -hmm. And um, and so this is neuroscience. This is the physical basis of the brain. And it's a, it's a shock to a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, say, well, that's not where I think. You know, they think, they, they think there's something about me that's just above and beyond the brain. I think one of the bits of surprise from uh, psychology is that that's not, uh, not true. Um, the second thing goes back to your discussion of, of nature and nurture, which is there's some incredibly cool studies of babies finding that, contrary to what a lot of people would expect, babies come into the world with a pretty rich understanding of the world. They, uh, they, they know about objects. They know about people. You show them a good person and a bad person, one person pushing another person down or helping. And even around their first year of age, they prefer the one that helps over the one that harms. So a lot of the basic ideas from like Plato on arguing about the innate built-in basis of a lot of our consciousness and intelligence seem to be right. And the third thing I tell people is about memory. Mm. So we tend to think of our memories as if, you know, you're holding up your camera and you're recording the world. You have a perfect record all stored in your head. And if, if you think really hard, you can get it back. Or if you're hypnotized or you have a, a sympathetic therapist. But it seems not to be true. It seems that memory is more of a reconstruction. When you remember something, you're pulling back from, uh, based on what you remember, what, what you recall, but also the sort of questions you're being asked, your mood at the time, what you want to be true. And because of that, there's both laboratory demonstrations and some real terrible cases in the real world where people end up with false memories. 
People go through a police interrogation where they're yelled at about a crime they didn't commit. And at the end of it, they think they committed it. Mm. And in the laboratory, uh, psychologists have instilled false memories in people. And I think what this means is that you think back on something five years ago, 10 years ago, even a year ago, and you're totally confident what happened, how things went down. You're probably wrong. <laughs> we are very overconfident in our, in our memories. So that's, maybe that's some bad news. Yeah, no, it's not bad news. It, it gives me a lot to interrogate. So let me just jump. You said two or three things. Now I want to get you to uh, expound on for us. Let me start with the latter. I work my way back. Um, so, so, so memory. Um, what have you learned um, over these years and all your research about how about I put this? The ways in which, to the extent we can, protect our memories. So, to your point, when we do in fact recall something from five years ago or ten years ago that we're recalling accurately. Is there anything we can do about that? And let me just say this right quick before we, uh, before we, before you answer that, uh, my Angelo, um, was, uh, was a, a godmother to me and I spent, uh, 20 some years, 25 years, uh, as her young understudy and uh, just uh, learned so much, of course, sitting at her feet. Um, and two things, one, we had this lifelong debate about what is the greater virtue, love or courage. We were discussing that the other day on this program. So I'm debating with Sidney Poitier for 27 years about nature versus nurture. I'm debating with Maya Angelou about the greatest virtue, love or courage. But one of the things that Maya told me, uh, we all know that her first memoir was I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And she said to mm-hmm. me, Tavis, um, if your career is going to be all that I think it is going to be, I, I suggest you take my advice. She said, don't wait until you're 80 years old, or 85 to write your life story. Do as I've done and write five memoirs, write it in five parts. Uh, and so I know why the Cage Bird Sing was her first book, but she did four other memoirs. And she did that in part because she was afraid that as she aged, her memory wouldn't be as good to tell the story the way it needed to be told. So every 10 years or so, uh, she'd write the, the next phase of her memoir because she was afraid that her memory necessarily wouldn't hold up. That's a long way of getting to the point I want to ask, which is, are there ways in which we can, again, to your to your joke earlier, which was, wasn't really a joke, it was funny, but it was true, ways we can protect and enhance our memories as we age? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I can't improve on her advice. The, the best thing to do if you want to remember something is write it down when it happens. Mm. Write it down, film it, tape it when it happens. A day later, it's going to get distorted. A week later, it, it, it's more distorted. And a month later, you could just as well have made it up. So, so get, get it down on the spot right away. And then, then you'll be surprised. You know, there, there's a study of people uh, at 9-11, when the planes hit on September 11th, right away people were asked, where were you when you heard the news? Mm-hmm. And then they got to back to the same people many years later and said, where were you when you heard the news? And for about half of them, the stories had no relationship to where they were. And this gets us to the, to the worst thing you can do for your memories. The worst thing you could do for your memories is talk about them with other people. Mm. If you don't already have it down, you're talking about it. Because then what happens is the converse, you'll change it, you, you, you simplify it, make it a good story, they expand on it. You know, I was once I was once at a party and I told people what I thought was kind of a funny story of something that happened to me. And on the drive home, my wife very nicely said to me, "You know, that happened to me, not to you." <laughs> but you know, I, but but that's but that's how memory works. That's how memory works. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, the things we share in marriages that that that's hilarious. Uh, yes. I, I'm also yes. I'm also struck by what, by what you said earlier uh, about the ways in which people can be their memories or their dispositions, uh, mental disposition, mental dispositions can be morphed or changed, uh, in a particular, 
space and time. And the example that I want to bring up to get your take on, uh, it just popped in my mind as you were thinking. I'm thinking about the Central Park Five, these five black men that we all know years ago who were accused of a heinous crime uh, in Central Park. Uh, And some of those young black men ended up confessing to things that they had not done. Now, I understand politically, I understand, you know, socially, I understand culturally how they might have decided to do that, perhaps because it was in their best interest at the time. What I don't understand is why, and it's why I'm talking to Dr. Paul Bloom, is how the mind allows them to end up confessing to things that they did not do. Somehow, these detectives got inside their heads uh, and yeah. made them say things that just weren't true, which we found out years later. Uh, in terms of in, in terms of how the mind works, the mysteries of the mind, can you tell me anything about that? It sounds it sounds astonishing. I mean, what what doesn't sound so surprising is somebody might might confess falsely because they're told, "Oh, you'll get off," or you know, "This is the way this is the way to solve your problems." But but to get people to actually believe they did things they didn't do. Mm is one of the more shocking betrayals of memory. But it kind of falls out from how, how memory works. I'll take a very, very mild example. We show you a video of a, of, of a, of a movie where things, different things happen. And in the middle of it, we say to you, you know, how fast was the school bus going when it went past? You say, I don't know, I didn't notice. Then a week later, we ask you, so uh, was there a school bus in the scene? You say, oh yeah, even though there wasn't. But the question assumed one, and you added it to your narrative. That's a very small example. Mm -hmm. But imagine somebody being interrogated days after days with little sleep, being told, look, this is what happened. We know this. You better fess up to it. And sometimes people, particularly when they don't have their defenses up, will absorb what they're being told and what they're being asked into a narrative that they themselves believe. There have been people who have turned themselves in for crimes. And then, and then people go, look, Patrick, you weren't even in the country then. You couldn't have done it. And memory is, is extraordinarily fragile. And, and in, in a different regard, going back to the, to the, to the Central Park Five and similar cases, mm-hmm. um, one of the good things my colleagues have done in the world is they've shown up the limitations of eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. It is something so compelling. Someone's on a trial, and I point, and I say, he did it. I know, I, I know it's him. You hear this, and it says, how could you argue against it? But now we know that not lying, not, not, not in some way was an ulterior motive. People can honestly believe that somebody, something happened, even, even if it didn't. Yeah. And, so, and this has led to revolution in how we do eyewitness testimony and also police interviews. I want to come to that right now, eyewitness testimony, because I, I wanted to ask, as I will uh, right now, how it is that, say, five people can be at the scene of whatever the event is. And when they sit with detectives, you know, days later, uh, five of them at the same spot at the same time witnessing the same event, but their memories of it are all vastly different. How's that possible? It's, it's more of the same. When, when, we, when it's later on and you try to recall something, you bring in your expectations of how things should be. You bring in the questions you were asked. You bring in what, how you talked about it before. It doesn't have to be a crime. You know, get together with, with five friends on something. Or go for dinner or something. And then just for fun, next time you go, hey, d- describe it. You know, who, what did we order? Where did we go? You'll be shocked at how, at how different the explanations are.
Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's other facts. Like when it comes to eyewitness testimony, for instance, there, there's there's racial biases, and racial biases in in some ways that are not surprising. Which is, if you expect a certain race to commit a crime, you're more likely to remember it as such. But also, even in a very uh, unintentioned way, uh, we are less good at recognizing uh, people who come from ethnic groups we're less familiar with. They call this the other race effect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, so white people are better at recognizing white faces than black faces. Yeah. And, and this also comes in for, t- for testimony problems. Mm. This might sound strange. I've got about 90 seconds here before news, traffic, and sports will continue when we come forward on the other side. But why quick in these 90 seconds? Um, we now know all these years later from the Human Genome Project that we ain't really that different. I really ain't that different from Dr. Paul Bloom. He's much brighter than I am. But the genome tells us that we're really not that different. How vastly different, though, are our minds? <laughs> that's, that's not a 90 second question. Um, we speak different languages. We have different opinions. We have different worldviews. My short answer is at root, we are not that different. Mm. At the most level of emotions and memories and how we think about the world, um, we are fundamentally the same person. And then our experiences and all sorts of things drift us in different ways. And there's a lot to be said about how we're different. Um, you're, I think you're a lot more extroverted than I am. You're, I can do what you do, <laughs> and but 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 that but that might be in the in the one percent, and yeah. the other ninety nine percent we don't even notice because there's so much the same. So that's the short answer. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, the longer answer. I promise we'll come right back to that question and give him more time to unpack that, which is how different, how vastly different are our minds. I raised this because there've been all kind of books. Uh, the bell curve and any other any number of other texts written over the years that suggest that some of us who uh, have more melanin in our skins are intellectually inferior. Uh, and I wanted to I want to probe that with Dr. Paul Bloom and ask him, how different are we really when it comes to uh, the mysteries of the human mind? His book, his latest text is called Psych, the story of the human mind. He's Dr. Paul Bloom. Uh, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University for years taught the most popular course at Yale. And today you get to audit it for free on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580-1800-920-1580. We have been delighted all three hours today to play the music of Chaka Khan. As she celebrates, Chaka does, her 70th birthday today. It reminds me, speaking of memory, this I do recall, Dr. Bloom. My memory's working well in this regard. Uh, I was um, I was somewhere one day, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, this song came on, and the little girl uh, looked at her mother and says, why is that lady singing Whitney Houston's song? Uh, and all the adults sort of fell out. Uh, of course, the little child didn't know that before Whitney had done this song, Chaka Khan had done it. She said, why is that lady, and who is that lady singing Whitney Houston's song? And I remember just laughing that day. Uh, Chaka did it well, and so did Whitney, but only one of them is celebrating her 70th birthday today. So happy birthday to Chaka Khan. So there's an example that my memory still works well sometime. Uh, I don't recall where I was, but I recall the story, what the little girl said uh, to her mother. Uh, we are talking in this hour with Dr. Paul Bloom, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. His new book is called Psych, the story of the human mind. And uh, we are probing uh, this uh, three pound piece of meat, as he put it, between our two ears uh, and all things related to it. Before news, traffic and sports, Dr. Bloom, as you recall, I was I was asking you, uh, based on what we now know about the Human Genome Project, that we're really not that different. 
how different our minds really are. There have been all kinds of texts and, and individuals over the years who advanced this notion that some of us who, uh, like yours truly, have a bit more melanin in our skin or not as intellectually adroit as others are. So I ask, how different are our minds? You gave me the short answer, now give me the long answer. Yeah, um, so in some way you're asking two questions. Okay. One question you're asking, the pointed question is, what about differences between human groups? Between whites and blacks and Jews and Asians and so on, mm-hmm. and and you know you know people have people have different cultures they have different environments, uh, but I think the evidence is that every that the differences there tend to be cultural having to do with history, different history different communities. Um, you know, you, if you know somebody's ethnicity, you can pretty, give a pretty good guess as to what they might do for a living. Some, some as you have more different jobs than others, but I don't think this is a fundamental psychological difference. I think it's more of a difference between in, in culture, in upbringing, and you know, in the United States in history, mm-hmm. where where a lot of a lot of particularly the disadvantages some groups face reflect you know deep deep differences, deep deep injustices that lack that happen over time. And, you know, I'm, I don't have to lecture you on this. It's kind of, it, I, I think a lot of this is fairly obvious mm-hmm. to most people. Okay, but now here's the kind of interesting thing. You take people from the same family, the same community. Uh, no differences in ethnicity. They're all, that's, all, that's all the same. But people are still going to differ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people are extroverted. Some are introverted. Some are straight. Some are gay. Some are quick to anger. Some, some get into trouble all the time. Some are very law-abiding. Um, some, you know, and, and psychology, what makes people different? Some do well at school, some do poorly at school. And so we're trying to, to figure it out. Like me and my, my brother and my sister, we have different genes and, and, you know, genes get shuffled around differently and different genes are my neighbors. That could play some role. Mm. There's, there's, there's good reason to believe that most like, just like any physical differences, whether you're taller than me or whatever, um, have genetic basis. Psychological differences have some genetic basis. Um, if one person's, if I know how introverted your biological mother and biological father are, even if they never raised you, I could guess how introverted you would be. Mm-hmm. Not at a hundred percent, but I get some sense. But then there's all the parts that don't have to do with genes. Some of it has to do with how you're raised, and some of it has to do with your environment. So there's a lot of interest, for instance, in the role of a kid's peer group, the, the kids, other kids they hang out with, as teenagers younger than that, mm-hmm. in shaping their personalities and shaping their identities. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the answer to why are we different has a million, you know, different. It goes a million different ways. It's very interesting. There's some surprises there. Yeah. There's some studies, for instance, suggesting that parenting doesn't play as much of a role as people used to believe. Mm. Mm. Um, give, give me a bit more about that. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, it used to believe, you know, if you have uh, aggressive parents who are maybe, uh, maybe who, who are, who are very physical with you, um, that makes aggressive kids. But it turns out that a lot of the connection is that whatever aggressive, whatever makes the parents aggressive from the standpoint of their genes, the kid hasn't too, if they're biological kids and that gets, gets sent. And if it turned out that your parents, how, how you're parented, how you're raised, has an enormous role in your personality. Then adopted kids who are adopted into the family should be kind of the same as the non-adopted kids. You know, if, mm-hmm. if my parents raised, raised me and they also raised an adopted son and they play a huge role in shaping personality, the adopted kids should be a lot like me. 
And one of the surprises is that it doesn't. It doesn't seem to happen that way. Mm. I mean, parents do a lot by loving their kids, by supporting their kids, by making their kids' lives good. It's not clear that as parents, you know, I, I have a couple of kids, and, as, you know, and in some ways it's kind of shock to me, but as parents, we don't quite mold our kids' personalities maybe as much as we think we do. Yeah, that may be a good thing. That may well be a good thing. You know, <laughs> and and And... And you say this, and anybody who has more than one kid yeah. kind of nods. You have just one kid, you say, oh, yeah, I'm, that kid's coming out just the way I did it. Then you have a second kid, and the kid goes in an entirely different direction. <laughs> and you say, oh, my God, I have no control over it. <laughs> uh, you, you teed this up earlier. I want to come right to it now and ask you about it more expressly, and that is the role of culture in shaping our mind. Talk to me. Yeah, this is, this is, you know, I, I write in the book, and I tell the story of psychology, and I, and, I, and I boast about our discoveries and everything. But we have some embarrassments. And here's one big embarrassment. Most of our research, almost all of our research, has been done from people in what they call weird societies. That's Western-educated, industrialized, rich democracies. We test people in the United States. We test them in Germany and Canada. But we don't do much research in the rest of the world, India and China and Africa and as a result, our theories are very narrow. Mm-hmm. Now, it might have turned out it doesn't matter. Everybody's the same. But culture does matter. All sorts of things that you might think are universal. Like, for instance, Americans show a sort of self-enhancement bias. If I ask you for just about everything, are you lower than average, average, or better than average? You being a healthy psychological person in the West will say, will say I'm better than average. Mm-hmm. It's every, people, people need a better than average. Friends, drivers, partners... Uh, they're better than average sense of humor, better than average at school. And and we used to argue, well, this is human nature. But now we start looking at other societies, particularly in Asia, and it turns out maybe this isn't universal. Mm-hmm. And we're learning more and more to be cautious about what we say is a psychological universal. We could, Sometimes we could say, but if you're going to say it, you have to test people from all around the world. And until we do that, we, we've lost our right to say it. I'm watching my time here, so now I'm going to start throwing topics at you that I know you've written about in this book expressly that I want to, uh, specifically rather, that I want to get to, or things I've watched and listened to you uh, opine on in your TED Talks and beyond that I want to get you to comment on. So I'm going to start throwing stuff at you uh, between now and the top of the hour. Uh, let me start okay. with th- let me start with this one. Uh, what would you have said if you'd been in those lunches that I had with Sidney Portier every other Tuesday for 27 years about our debate of uh, our debate? Of nature versus nurture. By the way, he took the nature argument. I took the nurture argument. Just, because, just so you know, <laughs> you, you're going to hate this. It's, it's what it's what psychologists always say. It's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I, would say, I, 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 I would say nature and nurture. Uh-huh. Look, I would say, for instance, that that we're really swayed in our personalities by nature. A lot of our 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 capacities as humans are just our product of evolution. What we're wired up, but nurture has a huge role. Yeah. You you raise somebody as a hunter gatherer, you know, in the same sort of environment we lived in a million, you know, hundred thousand years ago, and somebody in a, in a contemporary big city like Chicago, they're going to come out very different. Yeah. You raise somebody in in a cruel society, they'll come out very very different from a kind society. I'm I'm if if you give me a specific thing, I'll tell you who I agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in general, you're both right. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you because you may agree with Portier, uh, <laughs> and, and I ain't going to let that happen on my show. Uh, so uh, okay. I, I digress on that point. Uh, looking at my clock, we got uh, some some time left between now and the top of the hour. When we come forward, these are things that are on my mind. Speaking of the mind, things are on my mind. I doubt we'll get to all these. We'll see how good Doctor Bloom is. Maybe
Maybe we'll run through these like a like on a part of the interruption. We'll just do a, a real fast round robin here. But I, I want to ask him about the psychology of emotions and decision making, uh, the development of morality and ethics. That really matters to me. Um, this urge that some of us have to break the rules. Where does that come from? Uh, whether or not AI can truly ever match human consciousness, and maybe a question about implicit bias. Let's see if we can cover as much of that as we can when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Paul Bloom on KBLA Talk 1580. His book is called Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. Um, watching my time here. Um, so we may have to top line some of these things uh, right quick for this audience, Dr. Bloom, but they can learn more when they read your book and go online and see all your TED Talks and all the things you've done. But I want to just uh, uh, get some top lines uh, to some of these issues I want to cover, and I think we can do all of them between now and the top of the hour. Let me start with this. This is not a question from me. This is a question from one of our listeners or any number of things coming at me. Let me get this one in right quick. Uh, Dr. Bloom, given black people's history of trauma, what is the effect it has on learning and memory? Um, the trauma of an individual interferes with learning and memory. That, that's pretty clear. Um, it, in some way, it's common sense, but unless you're sort of able to, to think in a, in a calm and relaxed way, you don't feel you're under threat, you don't feel you're, you're in, in, in an environment where people hate you, you, you do better. Yep. And so, so I, can't, I can't speak to the thing in general, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, a life of trauma is not conducive to a life of, of learning and flourishing. Yep. Um, speaking of which, um, what say you uh, about the development of morality and ethics vis-a-vis our minds? Ah, that's my day job. I mean, yeah. I, I, that's where I do my research and write my scientific papers. I think we are born with some understanding of morality and ethics. We are born with compassion and kindness and love. Uh, a, a revulsion towards unfairness and cruelty. Um, I think we have all these mental powers very early on, but it is very limited. So universal values, like the wrongness of slavery or the wrongness of racism, wrongness of sexism, they're not wired in us. They're, they're hard-fought discoveries. And so we start off with a sort of proto-morality, and then through culture and history, we get a better morality. Mm. What about this? Well, that, that's encouraging to know that we start out the right way. So many of us end up yeah. uh, you know, on the wrong side of these questions, but it's at least uh, encouraging to know we start out the right way. Uh, what about the psychology of emotions and decision-making? So uh, emotions have a, bad, have a bad rap. Emotions, people say, oh, you know, what you should do is you should become a Stoic or you should become a Buddhist and, right, and get rid of emotions like anger and anxiety and fear. And it's true these can go wrong. Many people see therapists because they can't get grip on, on these things. But the emotions are there for a reason. If you, if you never got angry, you'd be a patsy to anybody who wanted to push you over. Mm. If you never felt fear and anxiety, you wouldn't have lived long enough to be talking to me. Because, you know, fear and anxiety keep you out of dangerous places. Mm. If you didn't feel gratitude or shame or guilt, you wouldn't be a moral person making their way through the world. So emotions have a bad rap. Because when you think about them, we think when they go too far. But the right amount of emotions, the right level, mm. um, is, 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 I think, essential for a good and productive life. Mm. How should we think about implicit bias? There's a, a big debate in my field about it. Um, I think people are cautious about implicit bias tests, the sort of tests you could take online. Maybe don't show as much as people used to believe that they show. There's no such thing as like a racist detector you could do online. At the same time, though, Everybody, you and me, we walk around in a world with a sort of explicit understanding of the world and the kind of people we want to be. 
And then under the surface, we have, we have biases, you know? We might look at a person and then think, at some level, that person is not suited for the job because of his or her skin color. Um, that person is, uh, is not somebody I want to be with because of their, of their sex or their gender or something like that. And this, this could be implicit. You might feel a gut feeling and not know how to, how to deal with it. And I think part of the project of being a good person is learning to cope with your implicit biases, understanding them and overriding them. Mm. He's good. He's moving through these things as swiftly as I needed him to. Uh, in the few minutes that we have remaining, when we come forward, I now want to ask him about uh, this urge. He gave a powerful TED talk about this. I saw it a couple of days ago uh, about the surprising psychology behind your urge to break the rules if you're one of those persons. And, of course, everybody's talking these days about AI. We just had a conversation on this program the other day about chat GPT. Uh, and I want to ask him whether AI can ever truly match human consciousness he said earlier, computers don't have feelings. They don't. But I still want to ask that question. When we come forward, Dr. Paul Bloom, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Three minutes, three minutes, two questions. Um, the first question, um, your your TED Talk. Uh, can you just top line that for the audience so they can go check it out for themselves? Our guest, Dr. Paul Bloom, did a powerful TED Talk called The Surprising Psychology Behind Your Urge to Break the Rules. Dr. Bloom. Yeah, I'm really interested in why people do things they, they know are wrong, in part because, because they are wrong. They want to do the wrong thing. They want, to, they want to do the bad thing. They want to make the mistake. And I think there's different things going on here, but my favorite answer for this is that we want to be autonomous. We want to, we want to be able to express our own desires. We hate being told what to do. And so, you know, everybody says, if you do this, it's wrong. You shouldn't do this. Only a dummy would do this. And there's a very natural instinct in all of us, not just a four-year-old, but all of us to say, I'm going to do it yeah. anyway. And uh, so, so I talk about that in the TED Talk. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me cheat and throw this in right quick as a, as a follow-up. What, what, is it, what is it about the mind, period, that uh, convinces us or, uh, or titillates us to do things that we are expressly told not to do? I think uh, I, I think it's something you call wrapped up in your sense of self, your ego. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be pushed around. You know, if I said, to, "Look, Tavis, let me put your life in my hands, yeah. and and I'll tell you exactly what to do," even if you believe me, even if you believe I knew how to live your life better than you did, you you just say no. Yeah. You say I want to do it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's you can't take away my freedom to act. It's call it a love of autonomy, a love of freedom, a love mm -hmm. of self determination. Yeah, they tell you don't look in the box, and you look. Don't open the letter until I tell you to. We open the letter. We we open the letter early. I mean, we do those things that we are told exactly not to do, and that always fascinates me. Here's the exit question: uh, Everybody's talking uh, for obvious reasons about AI. Will AI ever be able to truly match human consciousness? That's an easy one. I don't know. Nobody knows. Mm. Nobody knows. AI is scaring a lot of people, including me. It is each month. It is getting better and better, and it's 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 intelligence skill could could put uh, both of us out of work possibly. Yeah. But but will it become conscious? Will it, will it be other people? And and if it's conscious, we can't just shut it down. We can't just tell it what to do. Then 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 the whole world changes. We are living in very very exciting times. Yeah. 
and very scary times. You call it exciting. Very scary your, your, your exciting is my scary. <laughs> but I, 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 <laughs> my exciting is my scary, too. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dr. Paul Bloom uh, is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus um, of psychology at Yale University. He's one of the best at this. A renowned psychologist, best-selling author, uh, who's dedicated his life, his work, and his witness to studying and exploring the mysteries of the human mind. His latest text is called Psych. The story of the human mind. I highly recommend it. Dr. Bloom, thank you, sir, for this one hour. I immensely enjoyed it and learned a great deal. I owe you, sir. Thank you. This has been a delight. I, I owe you. If you ever want, uh, you can have me back. I'd love to talk to you again. We'll make it happen. Thank you for your time. All the best to you. Time to make room now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson, followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way. We got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Once again, happy birthday to Chaka Khan. Uh, 70 years young today. I'll see Well, I won't be here tomorrow. I'll keep lying. Tomorrow's Friday. So tomorrow's the best of Tavis Smiley. Three great hours of our program from this week. Tomorrow on the best of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for tuning in today and all, all this week. Uh, until tomorrow. And as always, keep the faith.